Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn it into the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just take a left. We're in Malachi 3 this morning, continuing our series uh, through that book about being disappointed with God. And, and as we're doing that, I just kind of want to recap a little bit of where we've been, been before we get to this text. So um, Malachi is, is a prophet, which doesn't mean what many of us think it means. Prophet doesn't mean fortune teller. In many ways, it is, is someone who is not trying to predict the future so much as someone who is trying to influence it. In other words, working for change in other people. And so Malachi is moving into a situation where God's people had come back from the great exile that God had, had um, judged them with. And they had all of these expectations, expectations about being... Um, having, a, having a, a, a king over them, the Messiah, and, and having their sin dealt with, and having um, the Gentile rulers kind of cast off the glory of God coming back to dwell with them, and they live in the land, and it doesn't seem to be happening, and they're just disappointed. Like some of you are this morning. Some of us are. Seems like God's made all these promises, and yet my life is still a Tuesday. And so Malachi is speaking to a group of people who are acting out their disappointment, like I'm sure none of us do, right? And in the many ways in which they do. And so we looked, you know, a few weeks ago, we've looked at, at ways in which they've done that. This week, we get into this idea of returning to God and robbing him, in fact. So if you have your place in Malachi chapter 3, whether it's in your Bible or it's going to be behind me or in your order of worship, go ahead and stand um, as we do here Under the authority of God's word, I'm going to be reading verses um, 6 down through verse 12. This is God's word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, in tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, to see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts, and then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, apparently uh, today, without any pre-planning on our part, you have decided once again to um, speak into our lives as a congregation as it regards uh, what we do with our resources. And only wonder that that probably means that we need to hear this a lot. And so I just ask that you would give us soft hearts on a topic that is so easy to be defensive about. And everything in us, Lord, does not want to hear from you. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and soften our hearts and help us to walk with you and to receive your word, to see Jesus, to hear from him, uh, to see his perfect work, and then to receive it on our behalf. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So if you were to write a script of a scene 
And in that scene, um, there's a scene where God is kind of upset, right? And I know that's probably not very difficult for a lot of us to believe, especially if you grew up in the area. Like God is upset and he's calling his people back to him. If you were to guess what was the one thing that he would say, here's an evidence of how you're coming back to me. How many of you would have said turning from greed? I mean, honestly, right? Like, that's not what it is. I mean, I know you wouldn't. You know you wouldn't. You would have gone with something, the same thing that I probably would have. Like, that's something to have to do with, like, sex or partying or, or if, you're, if you've grown up in the church, like, show that you've returned to me by having better quiet times, right? Here, though, Malachi, in his on his fifth, what we call a, what the scholars call a disputation, which is just to say a fifth uh, dispute with his people, a fifth problem he has, a fifth issue that's going on. He chooses greed. That can't be right, can it? I mean, how, how is that right? Well, if you've been at Holy Cross for a bit, you know that a month ago we wrapped up an eight-week series on generosity. So maybe you weren't surprised about that. The language in this passage communicates pretty much everything we talked about in the last series, but does so in a way a way that engages with something that for us, in our culture, is an invisible problem. So here's what we're going to see this morning. It's simply this, that because God wants our hearts, he confronts us on that which we set our hearts. Because God wants our hearts, because that's what he's after, he confronts us on those things that we set our hearts on. So if you've got, uh, if you're a note taker, there's an outline in there. If, if not, don't worry about it. Let's, let's begin just looking at how God is unchanging. Look down at verse six. I'll just read it again. He says, for I, the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob are not consumed. Now that's, that's a pretty easy statement. Pretty straightforward, right? God's unchangeability keeps Israel, keeps God's people from being consumed. But let's talk a little bit about God's unchange ability. This is an idea, what, uh, what Christians will call a doctrine. So if you're not familiar with that word, a doctrine is simply something that you, uh, a truth that you pull out of the scriptures and say, here is what we know about God or us or something like that. So he, it pulls out this doctrine that can be confusing because how can you say that God is unchanging if you read the Bible, right? Because in the Bible, we see things like, um, the, the call not to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? That, that, the Holy Spirit can go from not being grieved to grieved. Well, that seems like change, doesn't it? We can read other passages in the, in the scriptures where, where God seems to change his mind on things. Where he relents from, more, from something he said he would do. He goes, ah, I'm not going to do that now. So how, what does it mean that God is unchanging? Well, um, uh, one of my former professors, a guy by the name of Richard Pratt, would say it this way. That God is unchanging in three main ways. Okay, and we're going to hit those. They'll be up behind me. Um, so... Here, here's what they are. That, that first and foremost, that God is unchanging in his character. Okay? And that means that his character does not change. So Exodus 34, you can look that up later. You want to write that down. That's where God declares his name to Moses. Moses is saying, show me your glory. And God declares his name. And he says, he, he calls himself the Lord, the Lord, and then goes through a list of attributes. Merciful, loving, but won't let the... the the guilty go unpunished, right? He, he talks about this, that God's character does not change. It never changes. Second thing is his, his covenants. Now, that's, that's a weird word, especially if you're not familiar with um, 
with, with that kind of language. Uh, covenants are simply promise-bound relationships. And these are things that he makes throughout the scriptures. And these do not change. When he makes this covenant, this first covenant in the, in the garden between Adam and, with Adam and Eve, it, and it works itself out throughout the scriptures, it never changes. So in Genesis 17, 7, this is, this is where God, he's called this guy by the name of Abraham, and he says that my, this covenant will be with you and with your children after you forever. Right? That doesn't change. So he doesn't change in his character, he doesn't change in his covenants, and finally he doesn't change in his counsels. And by counsels, um, throw that last one up there if you don't mind, Reagan. Um, by counsels, what that means is his plan. That God's plan, uh, and, and you can look up those Psalms a little later, runs from before creation. He had a story that he had written for all things, and that never changes even as he interacts with his, his creatures, us. And so because of these, because God never changes in his character, he never changes in his covenants, he never changes in his counsels, um, he said, God is saying, because of that, you, O Israel, are not consumed, judged. Why? Because his character is mercy, faithfulness. His covenant, he promised to deal with their sin. His counsels, his sovereign choice to save them. And so the important statement here is, these are the reasons, O Israel, these are the reasons, God's people, that you have not been judged. What do you think about that? Like, how do you hear that? What, wait a minute. You mean, what about, what about that quiet time? I mean, I do the right thing, right? I do the good stuff. I hang out in church. I, I meet with church people. We, we read the Bible. We, we do all this stuff. And what you're saying is like, these are the reasons? Yeah, these are the reasons. And especially in this context, these are the reasons you are not consumed, not because of your performance. And in light of that, we have this call. Look down at verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them, so return to me. Now, the first statement is striking if you think about it, because basically what he's saying is, you, God's people, Israel, like you, have not been following me. Now here's what's interesting. Because especially if you grew up in a, like in a Protestant church, <clears throat> even in a Reformed church like we are, Evangelical church, what you can th- say is, yes, that is so true. We are not perfect. That's not what he means. To follow the statutes of the Lord does not mean perfection. Because you know what's, what was included in those statutes? Sacrifice for sin. What he's not talking about is therefore you have not followed me perfectly. He's saying you are not faithful to me. See, we have this idea that, that, that when God gave the law, when God gave his Ten Commandments and all the things that come after that, that what he was saying is here's the perfect, you have to be like this and I will rescue you. And that is not the way it works. Like in the Old Testament, that is not the way it works. In the Old Testament, God rescues his people and then he gives them these, these laws and says this is what it looks like to be a rescued person. Now, can we keep them perfectly? Well, no, that's not the point. Because then he gives these sacrifices and says, of course you're going to mess up. I know you're going to mess up. You've always messed up. You're always going to because you're broken. But I'm going to take care of that. Can you trust me to take care of that? So he says, return to me. Return to me. Now, I want to say this about that. 
That word return in the original is really important because it is not grammatically a suggestion. Nor is it an invitation. Which kind of strikes against some of what we've learned is if you grew up in the church, you've learned kind of that, that God is a gentleman and God woos his people and he invites them into relationship with him. And that is true to an extent. But if you remember one of the passages that Michael read this morning, said that God calls everyone everywhere right now, commands them to repent. When God says return to me, that is not a suggestion. It is in, in the original an imperative It is not a question of like, you know, if you want to, I'd really like to be with you. It's now. Return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. You know, the irony of him saying that, return to me and I will return to you, is the fact that God is engaging with his people on that, which to some degree means he's already returned to them, right? He's not, he's not like silent to them, expecting them to get it together. He's already initiated with them. He's already moved towards them. And he's saying, return to me. Return to me and we'll be back into relationship as it's supposed to be. And he picks one way, one way. Because it raises the question, right? Okay, how should we do that? How should we do that? That's really important. Because when he says return, uh, one of the words, uh, churchy words that we use for return is repent. Okay, maybe you've heard that. Um, but my guess is, is that most of us in this room probably have heard that word in some context, but we don't exactly know what it means. Like for many of us, return, repent is the same as confess, right? Repentance is simply confessing, but that's not true. Confessing is confessing. And repentance, part of repentance is confessing. It can't be anything less than that. But repentance and return are the same thing. It means to turn. To turn away from something to God. Which means that there is a direction to our return to God. A direction away as well as a direction towards. You with me? Because this is important. If God says, hey, or if we say, listen, I'm struggling with, uh, I don't know, something no one here struggles with. I'm struggling with gossip. I'm struggling with like talking about people behind their back and no one struggles with that. But if you did, I'm struggling with that. And, and I'm saying, you know, God is calling me to repent of that. What it doesn't mean is confessing it. I, I, I sit down with Bob and I confess it to Bob. And then I go talk about Bob behind his back. That's not repentance. It's confession. I've told Bob, I haven't told him I talk about him behind his back, but I've told him I talk about people behind their back. And then I go and I talk about him. It's not repentance. Repentance is going, I'm confessing this. Jesus, I'm going to trust you instead of my desire to have the one up on everyone and I'm not going to gossip. Some of you are thinking like, Rick, but what does that mean? I mean, you just said we can't be perfect. You're right. I never said you had perfect repentance. What I said was there's a direction to our repentance. There must be. And so they ask, what should we do? What should we do? How do we return? How do we repent? Uh, don't, not to be confused with the word penance, which some of you have grown up with in churches. And that simply means to um, pay for what you've done. That's, that's not what repentance means. Repentance means to turn away. Okay. So in verses 8 and 9, he gives the what's and the why's. Look down in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Now when he says a man... 
Um, there's a particular, there's a few different words for man in Hebrew, the, the language this was written in. The word that he's using is a word that, um, it's actually one that you know as a name, Adam or Adam, which is what that means is it's the name for human, particularly man, universal. It gives across the idea because Adam was the first human, right? So therefore it gives the idea of universality. And what he's saying is, have you ever seen, would you ever imagine anyone, anywhere, any guy or woman, anybody rob their God? Now the irony is when he says that universally, what he's not meaning is just my people. He's talking about everyone everywhere, which includes lots of people that scripturally they go, they're worshiping false gods. So the irony is, have you ever seen anyone, anywhere, anyone who's worshiping a false god ever rob their false god? The implied answer is, well, no. He says, but you are robbing me. Those folks don't rob their false gods, but I'm the true God and you're like fine with it. You're good with it. Isn't that funny? Now, rob, what, is, what are we talking about there? Well, to rob someone, obviously, is to take their property. This is important because what he's about to get into is stuff they grew from the ground. That was in their mindset, in their context, their resources, their money. They planted it. The rain came. It grew. They gathered it. They harvested it. And God's saying, that's mine. And you stole it. Ouch. Shall a man rob God? But you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. Okay. Or offerings. Some of your translations will say offerings. Is there any more churchy word than the word tithe? Right? Like, uh, there are lots of words that in the, in, in the general culture that were used more in the church than not. But I don't, I don't think I've ever heard anyone outside of the church use the word tithe before, right? And so that can bring up some questions. Like, what, what is that? Where does that come from? Well, it's right here. Reagan's going to put it up for you. Like, um, so there are a bunch of different places where you see the foundation of this. So in Genesis 17, 7. No, it's not 17, 7. That's Okay. Abraham and Melchizedek, you get the idea. I, I just wrote the wrong passage up there. But in, in the book of Genesis, Abraham has gone and done this great thing. He's, he's taken his household, which helps you understand how big a household we're talking about, how big, a, how rich Abraham was, that it's a, basically an army. And he takes them and he goes and he conquers these kings. And when he returns, which what you would have in the ancient world when you conquered kings is all their stuff, he doesn't want to keep their stuff, so he gives it to this guy. A tenth of it, he gives us this guy, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. You can read more about him in the book of Hebrews. So that's, that's where we first see it. And then in Genesis 28, Jacob, basically, after God has been faithful to him, he promises that he's going to give a tenth of all he has to God. And then, of course, in Leviticus, at the last one, Leviticus is where we actually have it established, Leviticus 27.30, that this is what it means. The word tithe simply means a tenth. And scripturally it meant the first fruits, in other words, the first of your harvest, that which comes first, not has been, not that you gathered and then you're like, well, and we're going to take this much out of the leftovers. It was the first. It was the first and it was given to God. Now, when I say given to God, that's interesting, right? Because most of you are like, given to God. <laughs> Rick, let's be honest. Who does that money go to? 
We'll get to that in a second. I know we're skeptical, right? I know we're cynical. We have reason to be. But what's interesting in this passage is that Malachi is a prophet. And what's funny about prophets is they are not supported by the temple. In other words, Malachi is saying this, and I know all of us think like preachers say this because they have self-interest. And again, we'll get to that. Malachi is saying this, and he doesn't receive anything from this. He's got his own side gig. Actually, this is his side gig. He's got his own job that he does, and he's supporting his family and doing that stuff. This is his side gig, and he's saying, you need to be doing this. Malachi has no skin in this game. And yet he calls God's calling through him for for us to do that. He's not a priest, okay? We'll get more into how this works in a second. And that leads us to the tests of faith, okay? Look down at verses 10 uh, down through 12, especially verse 10. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house, okay? Full tithe. That is is giving note to a a full-hearted act. Like, don't just, don't just, don't just give the leftovers, okay? And let me, let me be clear on something. Because again, a lot of us grew up in church and we've seen that word tithes and offerings in those little bulletins all the time. A tithe is not whatever you plan to give that Sunday. Like the basket goes by and it's like, what do I have in my wallet uh, besides receipts? You know, and it's like, okay, I'll throw that in. And you, when you go, well, I tithe at church. No, that's giving. That's giving. That is not tithing. Tithing is a planned percentage of what we give you're like oh yeah I, I know I'm sorry you have you know a lot of churches have a hard time talking about this so most of us like we, we just never heard what he's saying is a full-hearted act and he says do this so there will be food in my house now this is interesting because in the ancient world it was very common to bring food to a temple if you were a worshiper of Zeus you brought food to the temple. Food is basically like your money in an agrarian society, right? So you would bring food to the temple. But the difference between those temples and God's house is that in those temples, you're bringing food to the temple because the God needs to eat. Zeus needs food. You know, Apollo needs food. Baal needs food. He needs to be served. God wants food in his house, not for him. Like, you don't have to do it. Ultimately, the reason why that is being taken and brought into God's house is because there are certain people in God, among God's people, in this time they were called the Levites and the priests, who had no land, had no ability to make a living for themselves and for their families. They could not grow their own food. They could not keep their own animals because God said, you guys don't get land. Ah, oh, poor guys, no land. Why? Because the rest of my people are going to support you while you serve them in being the mediator between us. And so bringing into God's house is basically saying, come, not only only do this because of what we're going to get to in a second of of like, I need you to show that that I am for you more precious than this stuff, but also because without it, these provisions I've made for you cannot continue. So he says, bring this full offering, this full tithe into my house. And then he says, to put me to the test. And this is crazy. Because one of the things that, even if you weren't, even if you weren't raised in church, even if you didn't grow up in church like I didn't, one of the things you probably just know intuitively is you're not supposed to put God to the test. Right? Like that's, that seems like that's a bad idea. Don't test God. It's going to go bad for you. And yet here, and there, there's good reason for that. 
In the Old Testament, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 6, God says, don't put me to the test like you did at Meribah. But here he's saying, in this one thing, can you, can you put me to the test? Why would he say that? Remember, the issue here is disappointment and doubt. Disappointment and doubt. It's basically like, you made all these promises. I don't see them happening. I can't really trust you. And God's saying, all right, I will come down to your level. And I'm saying, I want you to test me. I'll show you. You do this. And I, I will show you how faithful I am. Does he have to do that? No. God doesn't owe us a thing. That's the crazy grace in all of this. Does he have to come down and meet us in our doubts? No. Most of us don't think he does. Right? Most of us think like he's, he, he's angry at our doubts. He's, he's furious at them. And in fact, what he wants to do is he wants to say, quit doubting me. And instead, he, he, he kneels down like we do with our kids. And he says, I know you're scared. I know you're scared. I want you to test me in this. Let me show you how much I care for you. Let me show you what I'm willing to do for you. If you just do this one thing, one thing. You know what's crazy about that? He says, from the time of your fathers till now, you have not followed my statutes, my laws. Not this one thing. But he's saying, I just do this one thing. Not all 10. I get it. The 10 are hard. 10 are a big deal. Yes. But just do this one. Just do this one and I'll show you. Let, let me show you what I am like. And the crazy thing is that the blessing he talks about far outpaces what he asks. He asks for a tent and when he says, I'll open up the, the windows of heaven, for the record, that does not mean he just suddenly starts feeding you money, by the way. That's not like metaphorical. It is metaphorical, but not metaphorical the way you think. He's literally talking, I'm going to make it rain a lot. Who cares about that? If you're a farmer, you care a lot about that. As a matter of fact, that's the way you get income, right? He's saying, you do this, do this, and it's going to rain. And I'm going to open, there's going to be so much blessing. Your crops are going to grow so much. I'm going to tell the locusts, that's what he means by devourers. I'm going to tell the locusts, don't eat there. And your, your whole kind of, your whole people will be, will have amazing crops. Now, in Important in this is that this is not a quid pro quo. You give this and I'm going to give this. Nor is this what, the way we normally take it, which is individualistic. Right? This is where the prosperity guys get, get, go off the rails where they're like, you give your 50 bucks and God's going to give you 10,000. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as a people, you all follow me. And then you all not necessarily equally, because that, that's not the way God worked. I know that's hard, but it's not the way he works. But you all will experience blessing as a people. And this command is what it looks like to repent, to turn, to turn from one thing, which in this sense is robbing God. And we'll get to the why in a second. We do that. Back to him. Okay? With me? All right. 
Now let's get in a more applied mode if we can. Why is God choosing this one thing? And I know, like I said, in our cynical age, what we end up thinking is, well, someone's always trying to get my money. Abe tried to do it earlier. Now Rick's trying to do it. Somebody's always trying to do it. And if you're visiting here for the first time, you're like, this is what I was afraid of. I know. I'm sorry. Not really. But I I am sorry uh, that we met you in your cynicism. But let's try and be a little more open, okay? If, like I said, if Malachi is talking to a disappointed people and, and, and those whose expectations are not being met because of that, they're turning away from God. Why choose this one particular thing as the call to return? Can I suggest it's because God knows what it is that you and I and these people thousands of years ago do without, with money? What it is that we do with money? Did you know that Jesus talks about money more than he talks about anything else? Why? Because of what we do with money. Remember, God's after our hearts, so he confronts us on that which we set our hearts. And, and, and I know we just ended an eight-week series on generosity, and I, I promise you, like I said before, this passage was not planned on the last Sunday of Open Doors. It was not. I promise. But God is pushing on this issue because it easily tur- money easily turns into a savior for us. And I know that some of us here don't, don't even know what I mean by that because we're like a savior. I don't need a savior. Um, actually, I'd argue not only do you, but you know you do. And here's what I mean. It's because of what we look to money to do for us. Because you see, the, the story that the Bible tells is that God created all things and he created us to be over all things and that we were made to be in a dependent relationship with him. Uh, the way that the, the Apostle Paul, one of the early Christian leaders, said was that we were made by God and for him. So we're made by him, but we're also made for him. And, and in that, we, we were made to live and to find our meaning and our value and our, our, uh, our sense of truth and all of these, our provision. Everything was be, to be made to be found in him because that's where it comes from. But we became convinced of a lie that God isn't for us and we couldn't trust him. And so we turned away from him. And what, what happened when we did that is we became guilty. Most of us understand that, or at least have uh, intuited that. We became guilty of betraying him. But also we became stuck in our independence from him. What I mean by stuck is uh, most of us, all of us, don't have to be taught to look out for number one. Right? What's one of the first words that kids learn? Mine. Yeah. Declared by a school teacher, by the way. Um, Who has young kids? Yeah, mine. We don't have to be taught to look out for number one. It's our default. And so think with me. If, if we were designed to be dependent on him, and yet now we're, not, we're trying to not be dependent on him, we don't cease to be dependent. We just, we just change where we hope we can find all of those things. We, we change what we're going to be dependent on. It's no different than if we said, today, I've decided I no longer need oxygen. Well, that, that ends in death, right? Um, at least passing out, and then you'll breathe. But you can't do that because it's part of your design. And so the Bible's story is that we now take created things and we use them to try and rescue us from our situation. And the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry. And this is what we do with our money. I know, you don't believe me. Let me sum it up this way. Um, 
let's 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 look at it in terms of a diagram. Go ahead and put that up there, Rick. What we end up looking to for things is a status. We look for for things to provide us safety, and we look for things to provide us satisfaction. Okay, that's what we're talking about. And you and you know this. You know this because this is the way all of us do things. Like status, I need. If I have X, I will prove that I'm somebody. If I have that job, if I have those letters after my name, if I, if I make enough money, if I um, have the family that's perfect, whatever it is, it'll give me a status. I will be somebody. Some of us do it in terms of safety. Like if I have enough, it'll provide me safety. If I'm, if I'm loved by everyone, I'll finally be secure. And others of us do it for satisfaction. Like I need something to fill that nagging sense that things aren't right. What else can do it? Now, don't we do that with our money? Don't, don't listen to me. In some senses, listen to the scriptures, right? Look here. Look, look at this first one. Put that next one up there, right? Jesus tells a story in Luke 12. Okay? Luke chapter 12. One of the gospels. And he's telling a story. He's telling a story about a guy who's super rich and he's so rich. His resources, his, his, his crops are doing so well, they don't even fit in his barns. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to put all the stuff in them because there's nothing that can touch me. And Jesus says, fool, your life's taken from you tomorrow. You think this stuff can keep you safe? You know what this stuff can't do? Can't pay off death. Can't keep you safe. Oh. Or, or this one. Look at the next one. Give us the status. Proverbs 22. Um, it talks about one and two. It talks about this idea that the rich find themselves to have this status that makes them special, that makes them somebody, that makes them better than the poor. I know we don't think that. Ever. But the rich, they they have a different status than others. And that finally having enough of it will prove all of those people wrong. All of those people that said you would amount to nothing. All of those people who said you're, you're, you're not worth it. All of those people, if I have enough, it will be, it will, it will prove them wrong. And then this last one. This is great. Luke 15, the story, a famous story that Jesus told of this prodigal, this, this kid who tells his dad, um, I don't want you, I want your stuff. I'd rather you died and give me your stuff. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to run off to a far country and I'm going to blow it on parties and prostitutes. And that's what he does. That's what Jesus says he does. And, and he does that. Why does he do that? He does that because he thinks my life will be better if. My life will be better if. And so maybe that's some of us, right? You're not, you're not a money gatherer. You're not like having the storehouses full, but for you, it's what it can provide. The experiences it can provide, the, the ease it can provide, the, the ways in which you can just get whatever you want. Freedom. Is it working? How much will? How much more do you need? How many more zeros in the bank account before you are convinced nothing can happen to you that you can't handle? How many more things do you have to buy before you no longer get bored? How, how much do you not only have to make but to keep before you are convinced your father was wrong? Or your father-in-law? Of course it's not working. It's never enough. 
So long as you want money to do those things for you, you will never stop wanting and serving money. It will rule your life. But listen, those desires that you have for a status, for safety, for satisfaction, they're not wrong. Those are right. We just put them in the wrong place. Money can't fulfill them because you weren't made for money. You were made for God. I was made for God. Money can't save you from the fact that you know something is wrong with your status. You know that you are made to be safe and not, not at risk. You, you, know, you, you, you know that this, this nagging inside of you, that something is wrong. None of this, friends, is because you don't have enough money. It's because you're alienated from God. You need a status because you and I have betrayed God. We are liable for the the weight, to carry the weight of that betrayal, what the Bible calls guilt. You need satisfaction because we we were made to find our fullness in him. And yet everything in us says, not you, something else. And you were made for safety because we weren't made for death. We were made for life. And this is where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus came to give you a status by living perfectly and dying sacrificially to deal with your guilt. He came to make you secure by rising from death and defeating it, promising you also will rise with me. Death cannot hold you. And he came to give you satisfaction because he came to reconcile you with the God that you were made for. You do need a savior. And that savior is Jesus. He did it. He did, past tense, it. You don't have to. All you need to do is to trust in him. All right, but what about the brass tacks, right? Rick, you were saying repentance. Repentance is more than just saying it. It's turning. Okay, so what what does that mean? How do we practically do this? I should say two things. One, if you're not a Christian here this morning, listen in, but... But what I'm about to say, if you, if you get these things out of order and you go with this before you go with Jesus, you are going to be very tempted to think that God is satisfied because you're paying him off. Okay? So if you, if you have more questions about Jesus, come talk to me. Talk to one of our elders, Jason, who's, who's playing guitar up here. As a matter of fact, if you're a member of Holy Cross, can you raise your hand? Any of these folks can help talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Okay, but let's get things in the right order. But if you're a Christian, I want you to listen up. Living out the gospel, living out that trust that Jesus gives you a status, a satisfaction, and safety. What does it look like? What does it mean? Well, this is where the wisdom of God is so awesome, right? Look, God does not need your money. In fact, it's not yours anyway. Frankly, I'm going to say something, and Abe and Jerry are not going to be happy with me, but his church doesn't need your money either. God always provides for his church. He doesn't call you on a mission that he will not provide for. And if one of us, if all of us, if some of us begin to think like, I am essential to God's plan through Holy Cross. Oh, I mean, it takes one to know one, but that's really arrogant. Right? The church doesn't need your money. He can provide however he pleases. So, so why this tithe thing? Simply this. What better way to both declare 
And to put feet to our declaration that we are not looking to money for our status, our satisfaction, our safety, than to give it away. What better way to say, you know what? Jesus has given me everything, so there's nothing that money can give me. Jesus has given me everything, so money can't give me anything. What better way to show that than to say, so take it. So take it. And I know some of us are suspicious of this, right? Because it seems very, very self-serving for a pastor to say this. And it's easy to think that I'm doing all this spinning up here and kind of the, the spin zone's in full effect to get what you've worked hard for. On the one hand, I would say that's why we make a point here to show that this is from this book and not from Rick's ideas. If it was from Rick's ideas, you'd have every right to be suspicious and I would encourage you to. But I will also say this, not as a means to get congratulations. Some of you would say this is stupid, so that's fine. Not as a means to get congratulations, but as a means to at least speak to your skepticism. The elders can confirm with you, the deacons too. I've been doing this for 13 years at this church and I have turned down more raises than I can count. So this is not Rick's trying to get your money, okay? I'm not. This church does not want something from you, but we do want something for you. And that's what this tithe is about. See, the crazy thing about this particular thing is that God makes the promise that if you do this, if you just set aside that 10% of what he has given you, 10%, and if you think of it this way, it's God's property. It's not, God has given you this, and he's saying, you get to keep 90% of it. That's crazy. That if you will just give this 10% that he's given you, that he's gonna bless you for it. And if you're a Christian and you've never done this, then frankly, and I, I love the fact that we don't do the offering after the sermon. So there's no like, gosh, he's pressuring me so much. I love this. If you're a Christian and you've never done this, then the next time when, when that plate comes around, it's basically a time that God is saying, test me. Test me. Now, that is not to say you won't need a plan. I've said this before. If you want more on this, you can go back and listen to our podcast on those eight weeks on generosity. Percentage giving does not come automatically. I know that none of us, none of us in this room are like, have an extra 10% just sitting around. We're like, I mean, I just, you know, sure. I could give that today. No problem. I mean, Jeremy Velton apparently does. Because um, he can write a $350,000 check. At least Abe says that. So... I know it's not going to happen automatically. You're probably going to need to adjust your lifestyle like my wife and I did. But today is the day to begin. Pick a percentage, two, five, seven, whatever. Just get started. Turn, turn, test God. I am willing to tell you, I am willing to say, and some of you can testify to this. I'm willing to say like, he's not going to fail that test. He doesn't fail that test. See what God does and start moving towards that 10. God wants your hearts. He doesn't want your money, but he does want your hearts. And so he confronts us on that which we set our hearts on. That's the key. Tithing is one of the ways that we push against that tendency in us. And so we move our hearts to God. We, We hold loosely those things that we set our hearts on. You pray with me. Lord, I know after eight weeks of talking about this, 
I know this is a hard thing. And some of us, at the end of those eight weeks, we're like, so glad that's over. And then, surprise! So, Lord, I I just ask um, that you would meet us in our skepticism and our cynicism. Meet us there, Lord, because we need you to meet us there. You would work in us to hold loosely to those things we set our hearts upon so that our hearts might be set fully on you. We need you for this. We can't do it on our own. And so we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.